0: In 1609, Henry Hudson spent nearly nine months on a renegade journey in which he essentially hijacked the Dutch yacht de Halveman belonging to his employers, the Dutch East India Company, taking it and its cantankerous crew of 12 gruff Dutch seamen and three segregated Englishmen nearly 5,000 miles off course. And though inadvertently discovering, the great river that would come to eternally bear his name, he had no interest in the island of Manhattan or any of its inhabitants, rodent or human. What seemed to be the singular driving force behind this enigmatic sailor of English descent was the irrepressible fixation on finding his fame and glory by becoming the discoverer of the storied Northern Passage, the theoretical shortcut to China. And what begs some closer examination therein is the fact that Hudson not only defied his clearly defined orders from the VOC, but that he did so by harnessing data and intel from a school of thinkers that focused on an entirely different side of the planet. And if not for this pointedly proactive disobedience on the part of the aging rogue explorer, Henry Hudson, the course of history would have changed in innumerable ways. But Hudson did defy those orders, hijacking the Dutch yacht nearly 5,000 miles in the wrong direction, not to mention the wrong hemisphere, which illustrates a level of motivation that was more than just a whim. And the truth is, Henry Hudson would stop at nothing in order to stake his claim in the annals of this complicated history. Not an untapped fur trade that would make men rich for centuries. Not the finest natural port in the world available for the taking. And not even the well-being of his very own son. Nothing. Island, the story of how this culture, this world, this island, the place we now know as New York, came to be. My name is Chance Kelly, and I look forward to you saying, wow, history is cool. Episode 4, Obsession, 1609. As the sun set on the year 1609... The rigid and often dyspeptic directors of the Dutch East India Company were glad to learn that their 65-foot wood-hewn yacht was not, in fact, at the bottom of the Barents Sea, nor frozen in an iceberg in the Arctic Circle, and that 15 of Hudson's 16-man crew actually made it back alive. And being that this one casualty was an Englishman, these meticulous Dutch merchants calculated the overall end cost of this voyage as fairly reasonable. However, needless to say, the objective that they actually sent Hudson up there to pursue, the navigation of the Northeast Passage to Asia over the top of Russia, was certainly not accomplished. Specifically, he was instructed to go over this skinny little island called Novaya Zemblia, which points right up at the North Pole. And that objective was unfulfilled, not just for Hudson's insubordination, but because it was actually impossible in the first place. And even before accepting this commission from the Dutch East India Company, Hudson already knew that full well. (laughs) Didn't he, Meneer?
1: Well, I have some doubts. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, the inimitable Dr. Dr. Yap Jacobs about whether hudson actually knew that he had of course tried this this route before and so had others and they had failed however he may still have thought that some of the theories behind this idea
0: were correct and one of those more prominent theories came from a hardline calvinist minister by the name of petrus planchus Born in 1552 in what we call West Flanders today, Planchus had fled Brussels following the fall of Antwerp in 1585. In addition to being one of the founders of the Dutch East India Company in 1602, Planchus would also serve as its chief cartographer. Now this theory that we mentioned, that Planchus was a strong proponent of, said that in spite of the remarkable cold and prevalence of pack ice in this region that further toward the pole as a result of constant sunlight on that area for most of the year, that the uppermost region of that circle, perhaps from somewhere north of 80 degrees latitude and up, was not ice, but open ocean of temperate climate and smooth sailing to the other side of the planet.
1: That's entirely correct. Plontius is actually the one who can be credited with propagating the idea of a route to Asia straight over the pole, the North Pole. So that was his idea that once you would get north enough in in summer, that the, the rays of the sun would be strong enough to melt the polar ice.
0: So while Hudson had tried this twice before... This time he was working for the Dutch, the Dutch East India Company, who Petrus Planchus was a director of and the chief cartographer
1: for. Planchus was pretty big on this idea, wasn't he? He ascribed to that theory, and uh, and that's why Hudson received the instructions to try this route. So,
0: yeah. Now, folks, Latitude. If you're like me, you don't remember much of that from geography class. But to put latitude into perspective, there are only 90 degrees latitude on the globe from the equator to the North Pole. That's 90 degrees, zero at the equator, 90 at the North Pole. Manhattan sits just above 40 degrees latitude. The Arctic Circle starts at 66 degrees latitude. So when we're talking about 80 degrees latitude, that's really far up there. And it's really cold. And one of the main explorers whose records and charts Hudson was following on this voyage was the aforementioned Willem Barents, a Dutch explorer who had been up here just about 15 years prior, who met his own end on that sea, searching for this very same passage to Asia in 1597. And in 1608, Hudson had made it to the same mark that Barents had recorded in 1595 of 79 degrees latitude in a wooden sailboat that was even smaller than the half moon. Yes, the Hopewell of the English Muscovy Company that Hudson took in 1607 and 1608 was only about 50 feet long. And in spite of boldly swerving around gargantuan chunks of pack ice for hundreds of miles, by 1608, Henry Hudson had seen for two years in a row now, with his own awestruck eyes, that the only thing that moves at will through the Arctic Circle are whales, polar bears, and terrifyingly large icebergs that dwarfed any sailboat he went up there in. I mean, humans eventually would reach the North Pole, but that wouldn't be for another 300 years. I mean, yeah, but it just doesn't seem to make sense in spite of the two failures on these attempts in the same area in 1607 and 1608 after Hudson had seen with his own eyes that he couldn't make it. There was just too much ice. Why <laughs> did he take this assignment from the Dutch telling him to go the, to the exact same place the, but via the exact same route?
1: He didn't know. He had tried and failed, but then there are many other things that they tried and failed two times, three times, or even four times. So giving it another shot would not have been his preference, I'd say, but he had not rejected it as a a total impossibility.
0: Yeah, or he had something else up his sleeve. I mean, the Dutch are talking about sending him exactly where he knows he can't get through. He knows it. Regardless you know, of the fact that he's nodding at Petrus Planchus, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll definitely try it. He had no intention of doing it. His specific instructions from the VOC in 1609 went like this. Henry Hudson, Englishman, shall about the 1st of April sail in order to search for a passage by the north around the north side of Nova Zembla and shall continue thus along that parallel until he shall be able to sail southward to the latitude of 60 degrees, and shall think of discovering no other route or passage except the route around the north or northeast above Nova Zembla. Yep. Sounds familiar. <laughs> Definitely tried that one already. And as I've mentioned before, one of the things that really amazes me about this overall epic story is the sheer randomness through which it all panned out. Because it was Henry Hudson's very mercurial and unpredictably rebellious nature that appears to have been as responsible for the history of this place that we now call New York as anything. That though an Englishman, Hudson certainly did not let any national allegiance guide or alter his dreams, let alone his employment. Charles Effen will be right back after the break. To Hudson, it was pretty much an international free-for-all regarding whatever it took for him to find this northern passage. Now, there's another point that's very important to mention here, that after he was fired by the English Muscovy Company in 1608, and before he was officially hired by the Dutch East India Company in 1609, there was actually a third nation in the mix, wasn't there? Yes it was negotiating with the French as well and the much older wealthier and much better established nation of France which had also been far more active in trading and activity in the northwest hemisphere would have offered significantly more money
1: than the dutch republic that's possible That's possible. I don't know the exact offer. Probably Van Meter has has something to say about that. But the problem here is that we don't know how... We may not know exactly how much was offered. But yeah, it it would seem likely to me that the French ambassador in the Netherlands, once he got wind of Hudson being hired, tried to use means to persuade Hudson not to do so. And just getting Hudson to consider an offer and go to Paris, for instance, would already be a coup. So it's a coup.
0: It's an international status play to get an explorer from a rival nation to sail on your behalf. Not that this was a new concept at all. Columbus was an Italian sailing for the Spanish when he explored the southern part of the Western Hemisphere in 1492. Verrazano was an Italian sailing on behalf of the French king when he briefly entered the New York Bay in 1524. And as mentioned earlier, Estavo Gomez was a Portuguese sailor commissioned by Spain in 1525 when he also entered the New York Bay, also briefly, and then continued north to the Penobscot River in today's Maine, where he felt compelled to abduct 50 natives that he delivered as a gift to his king, Charles V, who to his credit was mortified by the act, admonished Gomez, and set them all free. Now, yeah, with all the Mystery swirling around Hudson and his nebulous legacy. One thing that is fairly clearly understood about him is that he was an absolute glutton for information, that he was nearly as obsessed about gathering the intel that would guide him on these momentous journeys as he was about finding this northern passage altogether, wasn't he?
1: In this respect, Hudson is not particularly different from just about. Uh, anybody else involved in finding such a passage. This was a, a general practice. What you do is you sail to an area with all the possible information that you have, you test it, um, because in many cases, the information that you have needs to be checked, and then you return, you hand in your journal and some geographer would try to make a map based on older maps, uh, correct mistakes that were obvious uh, from the new information. And it would be a continual accumulation of uh, geographical and navigational knowledge. So, yes, it is clear that Hudson played a role in this whole um, intellectual part of uh, the process of European uh, reconnaissance um, Outside of Europe.
0: Okay, yeah. So now, in addition to Plantius, there's yet another Flemish refugee from whom Hudson gleaned a lot of information.
1: Jodocus Hondius.
0: Okay. Now, a full decade younger than Plantius, and perhaps somewhat less ministerial in his approach to a worldwide view, Hondius was actually the first cartographer. By the way, Cartographer is just a fancy old-fashioned name for mapmaker. He was the first one to disconnect Greenland from the mainland of this new world that we would come to call North America. But at the time, they didn't know what to call it, and they didn't know what was or wasn't attached to it. That's how unknown this new world was. Now, maybe because he was a little bit younger, maybe because he wasn't a Calvinist minister, who knows? Perhaps he just wasn't as rigid as Planchus. Hundius was decidedly more focused on the western side of the planet, the side on which so much less was known and so much less was explored. So far.
1: It seems that Hundius had contact with some of the uh, english explorers that ha- that had gone to to virginia with Weymouth and john smith it's even presumed that it was hondius who supplied hudson with the information gathered
0: oh yeah mercurial as he may have been hudson got around he went to where the intel was and along with these dutch guys plantius and or flemish and and hondius as we've mentioned he and john smith were friends and John Smith's intel about the coast and inlets of this new land on which he had arrived as early as 1607 was critical to Hudson's pursuits. Now, as far as the Disney-style love story with the young gal from the Powhatan tribe, I'll leave that for another podcast. So by 1609, Henry Hudson had collected a lot of information about the western half of the planet. In fact, by the end of his 1608 voyage for which his journal does survive. By the time they had given up hope of going over Novaya Zemblia, this is what he wrote.
2: I therefore resolved to use all means I could to sail to the Northwest. But now, having spent more than half the time I had and only making a small amount of progress to contrary winds, I thought it was my duty to save food, wages and ship's gear and returned speedily and arrived home at Gravesend August 26, 1608.
0: Now, the truth is that that's not how it went in 1608. What happened in 1608 was after they learned that they couldn't make it over Navarre's Zemblia, Hudson did everything he could to cut a deal with his English crew to get them to agree to go to look for a northwest passage. But it was simply too late in the year. It was already August, so they couldn't do it. So, yeah, I'll ask it again. If he couldn't get the English crew to go along with changing course and going west in 1608, what was it about the Dutch crew in 1609 that convinced them to go along with it?
1: That is partly to do, I think, with the Dutch crew that he had. Some of these East India Company sailors may have been experienced, but on the southern route around Cape, the Cape of Good Hope. So they were used to tropical climes and sailing into to the Arctic must have been um, a chilly experience for them. They may actually, interestingly, not even have been told when they set out that they were going north. It was usual for such journeys to be kept secret, for the destination to be kept secret. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, that happens later on with many expeditions that are sent out.
0: Now, Yap, we should explain for clarification that the reason we refer to Jewett's journal instead of Hudson's for the 1609 voyage is because most of Hudson's has disappeared. Along with all the other speculation and intrigue of this voyage, the captain's missing journal is just yet another component which further texturizes this mystery. And so we have to rely on Hudson's ancient man of the sea, the cynical, cagey old Jewett for the global positioning and daily reporting of this mission. Yet even Jewett's journal has some significant gaps in it. The first one being at the very start of the trip, they leave Amsterdam on April 4th, 1609. And the next entry is one month later on May 5th, when they're cresting the North Cape, the top of Norway, and then there is another gap of two more weeks. Now the North Cape, the top of Norway, that's above this 66 degree latitude there. They're in the Arctic Circle. They're in the Barents Sea. And again, as Yap just told us, these sailors were used to taking the Southern route. That's Africa, <laughs> that's hot. These Dutchmen, these sea beggars, they'd never come here before to the Arctic. Also as
1: Yap said, It's very likely they didn't know where they were going. A few Dutch ships had actually sailed there. Um, The Dutch hadn't really started whaling around Spitsbergen um, at, at that point in time. So I think that his crew may have thought at some point, well, this is really getting too cold. This is getting dangerously cold. Let's start back, go back.
0: So though it's unwritten anywhere in Jewett's journal, one theory about this voyage is that during those silent periods in the journal, that the crew was in the
1: process of pursuing a mutiny. I think it's distinctly possible that there was at least a threat of a mutiny, but it is in my, my mind not very likely that an actual mutiny, that is a takeover of the ship and putting the captain out of command, occurred. Because they wouldn't go on going north if that had happened.
0: And regardless of the exact course of events during that first six or so week period, during which Jewett's journal has all these gaps, what appears to be happening, to my eye anyway, from about the middle of May forward, is Jewett recording a confluence of unreliable weather currents and navigational data. Waypoint islands out of position and other islands not there at all.
2: May 19th. Our latitude was 70 degrees. 30 minutes and we were inside a virtuous island, which placed us 60 miles ahead of our estimated position due to the set of the stream of the White Sea. But by 2 o'clock, the wind was directly ahead of us, and we could not get about the North Cape, so we tacked toward the east. May 28th. We should have been 910 miles of the Faroes, we had them in sight only 48 to 54 miles off. June 2nd At noon, we headed west-southwest to find Bus Island, discovered by one of the ships of Martin Frobisher in 1578 to determine whether or not it was charted in its proper latitude. June 3rd We believed ourselves near Bus Island. By midnight, we looked out for it but could not see it. June 6th, the wind varied between east-southeast and southwest, making us danger heading many times in a general west-southwest direction. So, what I read between the lines
0: here is that Jewett is covering his tracks, essentially documenting enough inaccuracies and nautical hazards by which he can justify that they didn't have a choice but to set a course westward. But hold on. Covering whose tracks exactly? His own? His crew's? Or his captain's? And were they only violating the orders of the company? Or were they taking their rebelliousness to an entirely different level? I mean, let's keep in mind who these half-moon sea beggars were. They were fighters, rebels, underdogs by birth, by nature, by experience. It was in their DNA. And Hudson knew that completely. He knew exactly what these Dutch mercenary sailors were made of. And he knew that once unleashed, that violence and aggression on the open seas could in and of itself become the very smoke screen he needs in order to effectively seek out and once and for all find this northern passage, which he was by now thoroughly convinced lay on the western side
1: of the planet. This was just unthinkable. You can't do that and return empty-handed and expect to be um, applauded.
0: But by now Hudson had devolved into a man who would answer not to the English, not to the Dutch, not to any nation. And quite possibly, not even to God. This was a man obsessed with finding the Northern Passage and willing to do nearly anything to make it a reality.
1: Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. He had the ship, he had the crew, he had the provisions. So he had the means. So this this really is... as I've described it before, a project manager going able.
0: And speaking of financial fuel, one more back pocket plan B option involved the standing offer that the state's general had issued several years earlier of 25,000 guilders to anybody who discovers the Northern Passage or more than 30 times what the VOC was supposed
1: to be paying him. Yeah. So actually, Hudson may even have said to them, hey, you know, if we get these 25,000, we'll split it. It's kind of the, the bank robber's deal, that kind of thing. And so with these four
0: calculating Englishmen finally in full accord with these 12 rabid Dutchmen, the renegade half moon beelines its way west across the North Atlantic on the lookout for land and ore opportunities. And the first of those opportunities is one that we've already mentioned, which came on June 25th.
2: June 25th. We stayed west by compass until 12 o'clock, at which time we sighted a sail and gave her chase. She was sailing eastward, and we sailed after her until 6 o'clock. So this
0: boatload of unpious, profit-seeking men heading west sees a ship heading east and does a 180 and chases it for six hours. By the way, that's 12 hours round trip. That's half a day. That's a motivated chase. But whatever intel or riches awaited them aboard that rival ship, they would never know. Because after having lost its foremast ten days earlier, the usually speedy hunter-chaser yacht, the Half Moon, was hamstrung and certainly not firing on all cylinders at this point. But that didn't deter these hungry seamen, because when they finally did put in, at a French settlement called La Havre, on what is called Nova Scotia today, where they would have made available to them everything they would need to repair their foremast and foresail and as soon as their ship was completely repaired following a week of friendly relations and active trading with the natives. This is what Hudson's crew did to
2: thank the natives of La Huff. July 25th, very fair weather and hot. In the morning, we manned our scout with four muskets and six men, took one of their Indian shallops and brought it aboard. Then we manned our scout and boat with 12 men muskets two stone point murderers and drew the savages from their houses and roped them as they would have done to us. Then we set sail and came down the harbour's mouth and rode there all night as the wind blew right in.
0: The stone point murderers that Jewett mentions were basically handheld cannons, 17th century bazookas, and this type of assault on an unsuspecting native village would have been nothing short of devastation. Yet, as I said, this story is complicated and we can't blame the Dutch, we can't blame the English, we can't blame the Protestants or the Catholics or any other large group for this series of atrocities. And it doesn't require a particularly spiritual individual to make an assessment that there must have been some kind of karmic intervention here, especially when you look at what subsequently befell this rogue band once they actually entered the waterway that its leader was convinced would take them to China. And yes, at the culmination of the navigational disaster that followed, Hudson would race back down the majestic river that would come to eternally bear his name and cruise right past the lush, green, wild island of Manhattan without giving either a second thought and sail his Dutch yacht directly back to Europe with the dark truth of exactly what happened on this schizophrenic voyage locked deep away inside his own tortured psyche. And what he may have told his 12-year-old son as explanation for these actions, one can only imagine. But amidst all the mystery surrounding this Sphinx-like navigator, one thing is for certain, that Henry Hudson's obsession did not end in 1609. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs, research associate James Mallon, executive producer Alec Baldwin, for Cavalry Audio and iHeart Radio. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camerata Triactina. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, wow, history is cool we'll see you next time. Folks, we want to thank you once again for listening. Remind you to please listen in order and tell you that we realize that there's a lot to digest on this untamed wild island of Manhattan. And for that very reason, we've set up an email just for you. So whenever you have a question, just email us at... Thepodcastisland at gmail.com. The Podcast Island, no caps, no punctuation, no spaces at gmail.com and you can also find that email address on our website thepodcastisland.com send us as many questions as you have email us as often as you like because your questions and comments if they're nice will be the content of our periodic review episodes which will come approximately every four or five episodes because as we've said this story is complicated but that's okay because the doctor is in and you will be kept up to date so climb aboard history is cool